Hi, and welcome to today's Hacker Public Radio. Foki, and with me today is Integral. Say hello, Integral. Hello, Integral. And the legendary Dan Washko. Hello, Integral. <laughs> Very good. So we're here today to review the book Badge of Infamy uh, by Lester Del Rey. And this is our first Hacker Public Radio audiobook review. So I don't know about you guys, but I'm very excited about this. And thank you both for joining me. Oh, I'm, I'm excited too. And thank you for, for suggesting this. Yeah, appreciate being on here. Um, actually, I think it was Integral who came up with the idea. So thanks to Integral too. I only had to talk him out of doing shadow magic. Hey, it's a good book. It's a fantastic. Just didn't want to do it as our first book since we hadn't either of us uh, finished this, the part two of it. But we'll talk about that another day, I hope. So, what did you guys think of the book? Can I ask a question first? Yeah, please. And I don't know if this is going to need to be edited out, but I'm not from Australia. <laughs> How much of this are we are we going to talk? I mean, we're not going to reveal the ending of the book or anything, are we? Oh, yes, of course. We're assuming that everyone listening to this has already read it. And we can do a little bit without giving anything away first, and then we'll let people know. Stop here if you intend on listening. How's that sound? Okay, that's fine. I just yeah, that works to, for me. I just want to know. Because sometimes it's hard to talk about a book without talking about the ending, too. Yeah, that's why I really didn't want restrictions on it. And I had I had Ken announce it, and he did that on today's HBR on a previous one as well. So we should be okay. All right. So what did you guys think of the I actually liked the book, um, and I'm not a huge fan of sci-fi. What, what did you at like least as far as books. What did you like about it? I liked that it was a interesting way of looking at how how you let your government tower and individual corporations. Yeah, I I really enjoyed that aspect about it too. I'm I'm uh, I follow politics. I really hate politics, but I follow them anyway. It's very interesting to me. That part of it, I really got into a lot. Dan, what'd you think? I'll, I'll tell you what, I was very surprised at how much I enjoyed listening to this. I really got into it, and it was difficult for me to put it, to not listen to it, because I was trying to keep it during my commute hours, not listening to it at work, because I wanted to devote attention to it. And actually, the last three chapters, I just went into the bedroom, laid in bed, and just did nothing but listen to it. I was thoroughly engrossed in the story and the characters, and I enjoyed it very much. I was very surprised at how relevant that this story was, and when I actually went and looked at some information on the book itself, was blown away that this was written in, what, 1957? Was it 57? I saw it in one place late 50s, and I saw another place early 60s, but your point stands. It doesn't matter at that point. Yeah, the relevancy was astonishing. Okay, I didn't know that this was written that far back, and I have to say, for something that was that far back, this is an amazing social commentary on today's political standing. Yeah, it really, really was. In fact, one if I, if I could just jump right into it, one of the things I noticed you know, today was I was listening to another podcast, and they were talking about all of the lobbyists that Obama and his administration has hired since he's been in. And one of his promises that he ran on was, we're not hiring any lobbyists. And they've just taken over. And that's, I mean, what this whole book was about, was these these lobbies that have taken over the government. Well, it's not so much that they've taken over the government, it's that they've straight out replaced it power-wise. Yeah, they absolutely have. They had their own courts, they had their own uh, police, 
they were able to well we won't get into that just yet but yeah they they completely replaced it you're right I mean, because the government still existed and all, it's just they sat in and they had more power, which is something that's amazing. Now, I didn't notice, I didn't notice any mention of a government being in place. The only mention of any government whatsoever was these lobbies. If I may add a correction in here, according to Wikipedia, Badge of Infamy was written in 1973. 73, okay. Yes, Badge of Infamy was written in 1973. I don't know about you guys, but I, you know, read... A good deal of sci-fi in my life and I could tell from reading this that it was written you know not in recent decades that it was that it was a little bit older and one of the one of the things that kind of tips you off and it, it reminded me a lot of uh, like Ray Bradbury's writing style where he, they really had no idea when he was writing this he really had no idea what the surface of Mars was like we kind of improvised made it a little more accessible than it truly is and it didn't it, I didn't think it hurt the story but it just you see that a lot and also early in the book the prices where the guy said an extra blank an extra dime would get you a blanket in the um like the flop house that he was in you guys notice that at all yeah when in reality it'd be in the complete opposite way around yeah they would give you the blanket for free and and but any extra perks would be you know more than a dime they'd be probably more than a dollar at this point yeah, that, that was the point I was making, is the price would be astronomical. Yeah, in, in comparison, it really would. And I, that doesn't bother me, but I notice it a lot in science fiction books where they make predictions about the future, but the one thing they'll often stay away from is the prices of things. They'll just either make them, you know, uh, modern-day prices, which is a, a nice hint as to when the book was written, or they'll come up with a whole new monetary, you know, denomination. A, a lot of guys will use credits, you know, they'll say, whatever earth credits space credit or, or just credits or creds that was the first thing that tipped me off of that this book was old i wouldn't say it tipped me off to begin with prompted me to go find when this book was written because of the price of things like getting a bowl of soup for like a uh, under a, all this stuff for under a quarter he had two quarters and he got all this stuff and i'm like i don't know the topic seems so relevant but the cost of items seems so archaic definitely was now, what other topics besides the lobbies did you, did you pick up on? Anything? Oh, if I may add further into that, though, before we jump into what you were saying, that's probably one of the things that, that like, pricks at me the most in, with sci-fi and older sci-fi. Not so much older sci-fi, but stuff that's not as old, like maybe from in the past decade or so, when it's a little difficult to read, like, stuff that doesn't mesh with technology even today but they're supposed to be futuristic. Oh, yeah, like how no one had a cell phone? Yeah, well, there was no cell phones. Stuff was on tape. They recorded stuff on tape still. I had mentioned this in the author that we interviewed, uh, Stephen Lake, who did the Earthfleet saga, and how everybody would carry around these, these like, pads that they would record stuff on. And I said that kind of just a little bothered me a little bit, because now, I mean, you have a cell phone that, you would do all sorts of functionality with, but you have hundreds of pads that you would have to read through. They just beam it to each other, and he purposefully did that. I'm really glad you mentioned that, Dan, because that was that was one of the things that I noticed, too. When they were out in the woods, this was early on in the books, so it's not much of a spoiler, but the way that he became a pariah, which is like, you know, just this underbelly of society was all these pariahs. The way that he became that was by operating on a friend of his outside of a lobby hospital. And they couldn't, you could perform medicine outside of a hospital, but you couldn't operate outside of a lobby controlled hospital. 
and they mentioned they made mention that there was no phone there hunting shed they were in. That kind of stuck out because if he had had a cell phone, if he if they had imagined that technology at this point, or if Lester Del Rey had, there'd have been no story. They'd have just used the cell phone and called in a, a, a medevac. Right, and I could have bought. And again, this is like time period. I could have bought if they would have said there was no cell phone tower or something was going on, like static interference, and they couldn't reach. I would have bought that no problem. Yeah, yeah same here. You know, even if their communication had just failed on them. Yep, that's not. Yeah, that's a really good point. That's a really good point. I can forgive somebody for not imagining technology, though. Even in a sci-fi, I can. I mean, it's like uh, I don't know if you guys ever listen to Cory Doctorow or read Cory Doctorow, but one of the things that he says often in his interviews, and I, he's quoting somebody else. He didn't even come up with it, but it's it's so poignant. He, he repeats it a lot. Is that science fiction writers often don't predict the future; they predict present. So they're just putting modern day problems into a future scenario which really makes me wonder what the heck kind of problems were they having with lobbyists back in the early 70s and what are they still doing around yeah exactly how can we fix that by now that that's that's the crazy part right yeah one of the really interesting things that i think is kind of a theme through this entire book here is that the main character's constantly presented with impossible choices where there's only one choice for him to to make and it kind of damns him every time well yeah he's always given the choice between right and wrong frankly you know basically and he he picks right every time and he's damned for it because that's how broken the system is that's that's a really good point i mean that's how the whole pariah thing even gets started is that he's got a choice of saving his friend or and losing his license to practice and his ability to practice or letting him die. You remember his friend's reaction when he found out he had been, if it had been saved the way that it had? Yes. I thought it was, it was like very ludicrous and hard to, to believe that your life was just saved, but yet you'd rather have died. Yeah. So that your friend maintained their status. That's much. I believe the word he used was appalled. The friend was appalled at what had been done to him. Yeah. That killed me. I mean, what a perfect word to describe the situation that was going on there. And so because of that, he became a pariah. He became the worst on the face of the earth, you know, for saving a life. And he was like the top of the class. He was the upper crust. Oh, okay. And and this is a good this is a good example of of sort of different when this was written is when he found the uh the space guy the, the the spaceman i think is basically just what he called him found the guy was dying and he couldn't help him in the the flop house there and he went and told the attendant the guy was dying and the attendant brushed him off and he just told the guy his name the guy recognized him you know how many people attending anything or working any as any clerk position these days would recognize anyone from the news if it wasn't Charlie Sheen or Lady Gaga? I mean, wow, right? I see what you're saying, but it could also have been, he could have been like huge news because it sounded like the medical lobby was a major controlling force in the politics and in the world alone. I mean, and for him, someone to go pariah, it sounds like it could have made huge news. I would suspect that it would be akin to, I don't know, maybe Charlie Manson or something. Everybody knows them. Yeah, or like Dvorak. Or not Dvorak, uh, Kevorkian, that was his name. Sorry. Okay, yeah, I was going to say Dvorak. 
Well, he's public enemy number two, but whatever. Yeah. You make a good keyboard, everybody hates you. Uh, <laughs> I thought you were talking about John Dvorak. From... I was, well, I was trying to talk about Jack Dvorkin, but I screwed it up. Right. <laughs> we forgot to mention our beverage tonight, and I think mine's starting to go to my head maybe just a little bit. You guys each bring a beverage to review? I forgot to ask. I just finished mine. What'd you have? Yes. A Miller Genuine Draft, baby. All right, so let's hear the review. Of Miller Genuine Draft? You better. I've never had it. It's, you know, it's a uh, light, not a light beer, but it's a, uh, well, I, when I say light, I don't mean like Coors Light or anything like that. It's, it's a, a crisp lager, very light lager. It has a, a nice little sweetness to it, but not overly overpowering. For a run-of-the-mill standard American lager, I like it. It's not as good as Yingling. It's not, you know, I don't expect it to have the high praise that you would get from a hand microbrew. It's nothing like that. It's just mass-produced American lager. But for an affordable beer, it's not offensive. No, I don't find it offensive. I kind of like it a little better than Budweiser. It doesn't have like a, a harshness to it. It's okay. just, it's, I find it very smooth. But I like Budweiser too. You really? Yeah, I do. I like all, the only kind of beer I do not like is again light beers, Coors Light, Miller Light. Most of those light beers I do not like. I'm not very keen on the ultra beers, the ones that are like 64 calories. I think they're a little too watered down for my taste. But anything Never above even. and beyond that. Never even tried an ultra beer, but those light beers to me taste like a fountain soda. They're just so sweet and and bubbly. That's the really elders to them to me. Yeah, I don't. I'm not a big fan of those. So MGD thumbs up. I I give it a thumbs. up. I'm drinking it. I'll tell you hey. what. If I didn't if I didn't like it, I, oh, um, probably one of the not. Well, that's a light beer too. I think the Budweiser. Um, they came out with Bud Lime. Remember that? Oh, yeah. Miller Lite, yeah. Lime, Bud Lime. There's another one that's like wheat or something like that. I did not like that. But is that the golden wheat? The, it might be. I think it is. Yeah, wheat beers are, are a little different. <laughs> Definitely not the same. But if you like Budweiser, I mean, that's a rice beer, isn't it? Is it? I think most American beers are rice beers. Most of the, the giant ones, yeah. There's not enough of, of uh, you know, whatever the, the, they would substitute rice in for. I'm going to look that be. up. Keep going. I could be wrong. Oh, oh yes, it's brewed using barley, malt, rice, water, hops, and yeast. Dan, you are the best BS caller on any podcast that I know of, and I love you for it. <laughs> I wonder if Miller Genuine has rice in it. I have no idea. In a row, what are you drinking? I'm drinking a uh, Blind Dog Tire Bite Golden Ale. Oh, I've seen those. I can get that if you like it. I do like it. It was actually really good kind of had a bit of a sweet flavor to it and it was it had a good hops to it some people may disagree with me but i think this one almost goes into a pale ale category with how hoppy it is but it's it's still on the lower end how is it for sweetness eh, it wasn't extremely sweet but you could you could tell it was a little bit sweeter than usual than you know just your bitter okay yeah and that's what usually kills me about beers if they're too sweet i have a hard time with them yeah it's not too sweet it has a slight kick to it Cool, so is that a, is that a recognition, a thumbs up? Yeah, I'd give it a thumbs up. Awesome. I'm drinking what might, what's very quickly my favorite red wine. I'm drinking uh, Apothic Red Winemaker's Blend from California. This one says 2009 on the bottle. 
and it's it's a blend wine. It's Zinfandel and Syrah and Merlot, and who knows if they got a couple of others in there or not. This is like a $9 bottle of wine, and I don't taste any tannins in it at all. And the tannins is the part about wine that people always go, oh, I don't like that. If it's if it's got tannins in it, people don't like red wine. It's got a lot of tannins to it. And that's why you got to let wine age just to mellow those out. And this, I don't taste it. I want this wine. It's, it's really nice. It's it's like thick. It's almost got a uh, a maple flavor to it. Almost, it's kind of it's kind of vanilla, vanilla y for a red. And it's it's nice. I like this one a lot. It's quickly quickly becoming my favorite. I, I usually drink the drinking red wine. I usually drink the uh, yellowtail Shiraz Cabernet blend. And uh, the one with the purple bottle, and I like that one a lot. And this one is even better. It's it's a lot more mellow. What so is it I, called? This one is Apothic Red, A P O T H I C, and it's just an all black bottle with a red letter A on it. It looks like the scarlet letter, you know, the um the adultery letter there, the scarlet yes. letter. So it, it's got kind of a kind of a dark look to the bottle anyway, and it's and it's a really dark red wine. I mean, you can't even see through it. That bottle looks familiar. I'm gonna have to keep an eye out for it because now I'm intrigued. For nine bucks, I'm telling you, if you don't like it, I'll buy the rest of the bottle off of you. It's it's that good. I'm gonna take your word for it. I always like to hear a good wine. They're hard to come by. Nobody ever has a good recommendation. Every recommendation I've tried has just been terrible. But I do like that. Um, who was it you were talking about? The Shiraz, the Yellowtail Shiraz. Yeah, the Yellowtail Shiraz. Yeah, that, and I think. Uh, doesn't what is it, Little Penguin or whatever it is, have a Shiraz too? I haven't tried it. I like yeah, this I think it's called Little Penguin. Yellowtails, are they out of Australia? Yeah, they're in Peter's back shore. That's right. I thought I think Little Penguin is too. If I'm not mistaken. Pe- yeah, Peter's got that great backyard. Yeah, they <laughs> if it's a Shiraz, it's it's probably Australian because they're they're from what I've read, that's where, you know, the the best of the Shiraz has come from is Australia. Well, that's where most of the Shiraz grapes are from, isn't it? I I think it is. I mean, they didn't originally come from there. They were they were brought there, probably by exported criminals. I'm guessing they've stole them. <laughs> they stole them from France, right? And uh, and I guess they they grew some of the best Shiraz in the world, and they also call it Syrah. It's the, it's the same thing, I think. And um, they grew some of the best in the world, and nobody was buying it. So they cut down all these vines because nobody was buying their wine. And they started planting other stuff, and it just wasn't working as good. And all of a sudden, Shiraz became popular, and all these old-growth vines were gone, and those are the best. So, like, we're missing out on some of the best wine in the world that could have been, and just we'll, we'll never see it. Just a sad story. It's a very sad story. If you drink wine, I mean, most guys, you know, all the guys I work with, you know, that that's whenever I do something I don't like, they'll just look at me and go, yeah, but you drink wine. Well, I don't completely blame. I'm not a big wine drinker myself. It's it's definitely an acquired, and, you know, because the first few that I drank, I didn't like at all. And I mean, you got to get to find what you like. Everyone's different, I guess. No, I agree with you on that. There's just a lot of nuances in wine and it's very you end up being tailored to someone's palate more than most beverages. Yeah, and that's the real pain neck about it, because they're usually, you know, for a good one, they're usually between 9 and 15 bucks for a good bottle of wine. And you can spend 15 bucks on a bottle of wine and get panther piss. Hopefully not. Or you could get a box of wine. If you like sweet wine, that's the way to go. A box of wine. <laughs> My wife box wine sometimes. 
What do you want to get her drink on? Hey, if go for the boxing challenge, right? (laughs) (laughs) You what? Drink a whole box yourself? I mean, no. Yeah. One sitting whole box. That's nuts. I've never heard of that. Crazy. You've got to practice that for years. Have you? You've done that integral? Oh God, no. Wow, that's pretty impressive. (laughs) He'd have to still be in college. You get fortified wine. Um, actually, I I have had probably five or six different ports that I've tried, and a port is a fortified wine, and they all suck except for one. One is in, it's fan, it's incredibly fantastic. It's my favorite wine. I wasn't talking about port. <laughs> Are you talking about Mad Dog? That is Mad Dog, and I think it's Thunderbird fortified wine and Irish Rose, probably Cisco. Probably. Ugh, I don't even want to think about it. <laughs> We've gotten so far away from the book now. <laughs> Go ahead, Dan. Bring us to the book. Help us out. I, I felt myself, when listening to the book, I felt my blood pressure rise a few times during these things. When, when he talked about how he became a pariah and thwarted by the medical lobby at every of the way, and, and particularly his instance with his ex-wife and... I found it interesting that she kind of came over to his side or the stuff that she would say to him. Hang on, Dan. Can we spoil this now? Because you're getting desperately close to spoilers here. I think we're past the beer and wine segment. We can spoil it. I was hoping so. All right, Dan. Kill it. Go ahead. All right. In in a lot of stories or something like this, you would expect that his wife or eventually it's come around to his side of thinking and maybe change a little bit. But it, it never appeared that she did. No, she was always for herself. She wanted that cure for herself because she was infected. Yes, she did. And yeah, and if not for her, then for her father. That could be too. That could be. It did hint to it a couple of times, but like towards the end when they were getting close to the cure, she was really excited when she thought hers was fixed. That and also all the time that she wanted this cure, she just was never. Like, gonna break from the medical lobby way of doing things, too. She would let him do it and, and coerce him into doing it, but not her. She was always staying on the straight and narrow with him. I, I liked that one scene where she actually was in patients, and they were that, that other doctor's patients, and he sent her away. He's like, you're, you're not a doctor. You're like a, a technician to these people. I forget exactly what he said. He's like, you're not treating my patients anymore. I thought that was great. She was she was a shrew. She was evil. Yeah, I don't know. See, I don't think she was evil. I, I but I don't was... mean like evil in the evil sense. She was just. Uh... Go I ahead. think she was very self motivated. She definitely was self motivated. Yeah, yeah. And I just I thought like, you know, for the in, it, it is a couple times in the book, maybe two or three times, where it says that he could picture again what he used to love about her, and I was right there with. Him. I could almost, you know understand what he meant you know and again looking back at the time period when this was written um coming out of the 60s into the 70s and the liberation movements and the free love and everything it's interesting to see like probably the the epitome of cold mechanized in it for yourself portrayal of the medical lobby is embodied in her being a female character, one who you would assume would be, you know, traditional female nurturing kind of roles is completely reversed. And he seemed to be more sympathetic and nurturing and 
have the quote feminine qualities than she did. I mean, she was a very ruthless. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, he because he turned himself over and all his notes, or was ready to two, three times in the book. Right. Yeah, at least. But you have to kind of look back at that time period. Any women that were in business were really cutthroat, at least that were higher up, or that was at least the perception of them. I I think the same could be said about most people, men or women these days, that are real high up. Yes. Yeah, I wouldn't disagree. That's the way our society is going. I mean, it's curious. It makes me wonder now that you've said that, whether society was still trending that way at that point. Because I think we're there now. We're way beyond that point now. Not at my company, of course, since the boss is listening. Of course not. Your company's the exception. I did find that a lot of the characters in the book were very likable at first. And how how do I say this? Like the guys, he he did he did a very handy job of taking the guys that were kind of on the pariah side and presenting them in a very kind of positive light. But those who were not on his side quickly became villainous. Yeah. Yeah, and there was one exception to that, wasn't there? It was who was who was the one guy that was charitable? Oh, the captain, the captain of the of yes, the, the captain. second spaceship. Yeah, but I I think I know who you were talking about at first. You're talking about um, the guy who seemed to be the the head of the uh, the tube men, right? Yes, very very much so. The tube men. I mean, there there was just like seemed like they could have been buddy, like him and Jake were. Oh yeah, like that dude's gonna but give then, you a big bear hug. But then you know it just. All of a sudden, these guys worked together for months at a time, like six months, worked together, had each other's backs, you know, things are going well, and then, boom, just one little thing comes up and they turn on him. Yeah. Well, you have to understand, that was kind of a big thing. I mean, he thought he had killed somebody that the guy had worked with for months, or years. Yep. Yep, that's true. You're right. Right. So as, as, as he had a six-month trip with this one guy, but he said he had three six-month trips with the other guy. So you think they would have gotten to know each other, he would have been a little more, you know... You would think that he would listen to what he had to say first. Right. Well, he listened to him in the end. Well, yeah, but before decking the guy and throwing a wrench at him. I don't know, man. I think I would have decked him first. Well, now we know what kind of guy you are, and I won't be in any tube with you in the near future. Thank goodness. <laughs> no, I mean, if if someone had come up to, to me, if I had found my best buddy's ticket, like driver's license came flying out of this other guy's bag. Yeah, I'm gonna think the worst instantly, and I, I don't know. I probably maybe I would, maybe I would have a level head. I'd like to think I would, but I suspect I wouldn't. I think I'd fly off the handle like that. I don't know. I could see if it was somebody you just met, maybe talking to her for a few hours, but six months working side by side in a life death situation. Yeah, well, I think I'm gonna get to the person a little more than that. Have a little bit more faith in them. Well, I don't know. They they didn't say that, though, did they? They never went into their relationship other than while they were working. Well, yeah, but to get a comment out of the guy of, you know, that he's not that bad for a greenhorn, that, you know, implies that they've had some sort of relationship there. That's true, yeah. He's at least a hard worker. Yeah, and that's something that the guy expected. Yeah. But then again, it was a plot device to get him onto the, on the Mars anyhow, so... It stranded was. on the Mars. And, yeah, and I'm a sucker for a good plot device. When you brought up the cat, who was very cordial to him, and, and I believe the cat also had, and his wife also had the disease. Yes, they both did. 
I kind of had a respect for the captain from the get-go. Oh, yeah. Um, and I, I felt really, you know, and I was not turned off by learning that he and his wife had the disease. But that reminded me of when they they threw him out of the airlock. Yep. And he was out there, and then his... What was her name again? Gosh. Not talking like, about Chris? Chris, yeah. I was thinking, is it, was it Christina? Is her full name? Or is it just Chris? Remember I now. don't think it really matters. Uh, well, when I Chris just call came, my ex ex. So I, yeah, I don't know. all right, his ex. Hey, came, they were still married. They, they were, were too. She never got the divorce. Remember? <laughs> oh, she, yeah, but only because too. it made her look bad. She played his ass. So you know bad. what? She may have gotten the divorce and just told him that she didn't, because no. she really she was playing him just then. But when she this this is one thing that I thought odd uh, when she picked him up. I thought that they had flown out on the captain's ship over a period of a couple of days. Okay. Or was it a week or something? I can't remember the time frame. But they went back on that life raft shuttle back to Mars. And yep. I just I just thought it was kinda odd. And nobody seemed to notice or well I guess I guess I could say it seemed kind of odd at that time, but then looking back, it almost seemed like it was a ploy the entire way by the medical lobby. That she, well, I don't know. Do you think it was a play by the medical lobby to get the cure? If it was, it was a really stupid one. But on the other hand, um, that <laughs> that's something that kind of... You said this was, book was a page-turner for you. Well, uh, the audio form, uh, you know, equivalent of a page-turner. And that you couldn't get enough of it. And I remember thinking that the first time that I listened to this. I mean, I listened to it in, in one sitting, all at once. I, I never stopped. And it was it was fascinating. For this show, I listened to it a second time, and I noticed things I didn't notice before, like holes in the plot. And the whole premise of the medical lobby relying on this guy who has no resources, no experience with research, with disease control or anything, that the second time I, I listened to it, that premise it was just full of holes for me. So as far as whether or not she was on the ship by their design... I, I'm not going to comment because that at that point I had already picked holes in it. Well, the way that I see the lobbies, and this may just be me being the way that I am, and I don't want to make anybody mad here, but I see them kind of like an overpowered union. They were the, the reverse of a union. Well, they were kind of groups that set up their own ways and set up everything just for themselves. I mean, that kind of is a union to me. Yeah, that's true. No, you're right, because unions are run by the bosses, too. Yeah, I mean, it's not just a over-number rules. But the way that I kind of saw it was is that maybe the medical lobby wasn't as well off as they thought they were as far as research went, because they covered that not many people did research for an elect few. Yeah, that was mentioned a couple times, like, uh, I think in the, either late in the first chapter or early in the second chapter... They mentioned that progress would had stalled at about the point of 1980. I mean, he made a point of saying that. Yeah, so maybe the whole thing is that they just couldn't get any farther because they didn't know how. Well, it, it remind me of that when we get to the end of the book, too, because he definitely bookended that thought. One thing I wanted to hear from you, Integral, if you don't mind, you were bursting at the seams online, and I had to stop you from talking to me about it. You wanted to talk about that first trial. Yes, I did. Well, I didn't want to talk about it, I, I, at least then. I wanted to just mention how awesome it was. That was definitely my favorite moment of the book. 
that was a good good time. I, I I was grinning when I when that came across. I mean, I was a little sad behind it because it was this guy that you knew, and then all of a sudden, surprise, he's a lawyer. <laughs> to me, that goes into my least favorite pro- plot device ever. That's and like it makes me want to cry. But the fact that he saves, saves the day on just such an such a off the the cuff technicality, and the judge goes with it, was awesome. It was awesome, and it was in case you had any doubts. The guy said that document was so sloppy you could prove anything. Yeah, exactly. Which was so perfect. it wasn't like he's just magical and he did whatever he could. Exactly, which is a big problem with a lot of sci-fi. You said you don't like sci-fi. Is that he'll just pull out some magic? You know, some technology, and be like, oh, we had it all along, and it's BS. And you and they, they, he exactly did not do that with this. You're, you're absolutely right. Yeah. At first, I was like, oh, great, he's a lawyer. This is just going to be sad. But he did it in a way that I was happy, and it worked out. It wasn't like in a racer where he just pops out with rail guns and starts shooting people. Right. Dan? That clearly showed me that the people on Mars, they, they had a... Kind of like the medical lobby was. They had their old, old-timey um, collectives and, and groups and everything, and they Good all kind club. of yeah looked out for one another. And there was this divide. Obviously, there was a divide between them and Earth, and them and the and the lobbies too. And there seemed to be a couple different classes of people. There was Jake and his group of people who were kind of rabble-rousing revolutionaries low-key revolutionaries, and then there was the medical lobby, who was the old overreaching governmental power, the, the oppressors, and then in between, there was just the common people, and those were the, they were they were hard to pinpoint whose side they were on, and more often than not, they just wanted to live and get by. They were not beyond being coerced into one side or the other for their own economic gain. And nor could you blame them. No, not at all. He did a very good job of painting a very desperate picture to for everyone who was not in that medical lobby. Yes, and I had a I had a hard time kind of pinpointing whether what the atmosphere was exactly like on Mars. I think it was breathable, but they required an apparatus because the air was just a little too thin or something. They had respirators. That's the impression that I got is there was something just making pressure for them. Uh huh. The impression I got was a little bit different. The populated areas were breathable, but the areas that were outside of that, you needed a respirator or something. Yeah, it seemed like outdoors you needed it. And as soon as they were indoors, there must have been an airlock or something. He didn't really go into the details on that. No, the only time that I caught any detail was that with that was whenever they were crashing the ship near the yeah. end of the book. Yeah, yeah, and also uh, right when he got to Mars, when he found he had the extra battery pack. Yeah, exactly spelled out there and the the one guy at the bar let him sit in the lobby yeah one thing you mentioned now that you mentioned that you know how mars was a little different one thing that i thought was really really fun just you know from kind of a nerd side of things is when they were driving the car really fast at one point that like tank car thing that they had and he said he had the rheostat turned all the way up so they're, they're dialing up a rheostat for speed i that was fun for me <laughs> the vehicles were pretty pretty interesting picture of they had uh tank treads didn't they yeah he said they were like a car but they were tracked right tracked now yeah he referred to them as treaders throughout most of the book 
Yeah, that's right. But it's in a small car for the early 70s, too, it's, it's very different than what we'd picture anyway, because they were sleeping in them. And doing research. Yeah, that's true. That's right. They were they were they had an electron microscope set up in there and everything. <laughs> it seemed like he just carried an electron microscope around with him. But he did. It was the only one on the planet. Okay. So I I have to admit I felt like an idiot at first whenever they started talking about the microscopes. Because you know the court hands him a uh, the judge hands him a optical microscope, but he calls an optical mic. And the first thing that pops into my head is that he hands him a microphone. Right, that's what I, th- I kept getting confused by. And so I was, you know, was going through my head, why is he handing him an, a microphone, and how is it optical? My second time through the book, I don't remember if I had that impression the first time. I, th- I thought it was, you know, that, the optical microscope and the electron microscope. Now, electron microscope is pretty damn huge. You don't carry one of those things around. I didn't I, think so. You was, do on Mars. Apparently, I was trying to figure out what if they can carry around an electron microscope. Why even bother with an optical microscope anymore? Well, again, it was the only one on Mars, and they hadn't put the surveillance device in it yet. Yeah, that's true. It took them a while to pick that up, though, didn't it? It did. Yeah, I think it, it took them longer than it should have. Okay, right. now, okay. All right. Now this is the part I've been dying to talk about with you guys. That it took them a while to pick that up. To me, and I remember clearly from the first time I read the book, it took forever. How long are you guys screaming, it's the brackyweed, it's the brackyweed? You know that part where he says it's the brackyweed? That's about when I picked it up the first time. Oh, really? I I, I kind of got it like right before that they, they did it. I didn't pick it up as quick as you did, Pokey, but towards the end. And when I did pick it up... It kind of like hit me in the head. I'm like, yeah, this was made in the 1970, or this was made a long time ago when when smoking was acceptable. Because I can't imagine anybody this day and age writing a story where the cure to the major illness is to start smoking. Yeah, I mean, he he spelled it out really, really clearly when they first asked for the volunteers, and they said they all put their bracky weeds out and followed him. I, I mean, I thought that was, like, abundantly clear at that point. But I remember the first time I read the book, it was way earlier than that. And I was going, come on, it's the bracky weed already. Well, did you actually read the book, or were you um, listening to the audio book then, too? Sorry, listening to it. I wasn't reading it. Okay. So, sorry, that was that was I. Unintentional. No, but I I think that the, the bracky weed... Because it was, it was a feature all through the book. I mean, even before there was bracky weed... When he was in that flop house in the very first scene, probably in the first paragraph, he was clutching the precious tobacco close to him. Yeah, that's true. And that, that was another good indicator. It was an oldish story. Well, no, I didn't think that was much of a tip-off. I think people feel the same today about tobacco as it did before. <laughs> well, I, I mean, it's got such a negative stigma these days. I don't know. Doctors running around chain-smoking. Oh, I then again. Being a pariah's got a negative, too. Yeah, I, I, I didn't so. mean to interrupt you, though. No, no, that, that, no, this is a good point. That is a good point. So, at the end, and I'm trying to recall now, the cure for that, was it just the bracky weed, or was it what his, uh, he came up with a cure in conjunction with the bracky weed? I no, thought it was just the bracky. It was the bracky weed. Yeah, there was, the, the infant's blood had some effect on the stuff, on the virus, while it was in the test tubes. <laughs> But it had no effect on anyone in the human body, oh. or in the adult human body, anyway. So you'd think that with all the people who were dropping over dead, 
and uh, and the the weeks that they spent researching this, that might have been a little more apparent. You you would think that at the at the funeral home, you know, the wake, <laughs> like just a cloudy room of survivors. Yeah, yeah, everybody there isn't sick and is smoking the bracky weed, but the few people that are dying still. Uh, yeah, and I would say yes, except that, I mean, this guy saw the very first case of it, too. True. Which was odd, because that guy didn't run or anything. Well, he saw the very first death of it. Yeah, but that first guy who died wasn't a runner. They could, Remember they called him runners? Right. Yeah. So that was kind of odd. That he was a, a runner. Hey, and that reminds me, that first guy that died, that pissed me off when that other doctor came in there and just shot him up with something to kill him. You know, I mean, the name of the drug that he shot him with was like Necro something or Narco something, whatever it was. It, it had death in the name. And that really annoyed me. And, and it just, and I think it annoyed the doctors, a doc. Uh, I think it annoyed him too. But before they mentioned that it annoyed him, it really annoyed me, and I, and I don't know if the author did that on purpose, you know, to, to make the guy more relatable, but that got to me. Narcanol, that's what it was. He, he shot him up with Narcanol. I think he did do it to make him relatable because, I mean, he kind of emphasized that whole, the, the uh, Dr. Radcliffe, it's Radcliffe, right? Uh, it's Doc, I, I forget. Doc, I'm sorry, not Radcliffe, what am I thinking? Feldman. Daniel Feldman. Yep, that's right. Doctor Feldman. Yeah, there you go. He he just he was derisive towards that doctor the whole time because he knew he could have he knew he could cure it if it was uh was it space intestine or whatever that was space space stomach space stomach he knew he could do it with a massage apparently that was another interesting thing uh, curing through the use of massage I don't know if that was a big topic. Or so to speak, um, in traditional medicine at that time period, that that seems something more in the uh, later decades of the '90s and 2000s, using non-traditional methods to cure disease. Yeah, that's a good point. Because even nowadays, massage isn't a cure; it's a therapy. Right. It almost seemed like you know that was a good representation of the standard medical lobby person. You know, a guy who's either and and. It draws a great parallel, like I said, integral to union, people who are under a union, saying that unions are bad or anything, but, I mean, they do have strict rules like that, that, you know, you can't do X, Y, and Z, and if it's your time, you don't do any work on your break time, or, you know, if that's not in your job detail, you don't go outside and do it, that's somebody else's job, you know, he just seemed to be by the book, uh, you know, this guy looks too far gone, I'm not even going to bother, narc him up, he's dead. But you know what he did do? He did make sure to collect his pay. He did. Yeah, it it mentioned he was faster than the attendant. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. exactly. Now, you say that, Dan, it makes me think. I I tried to do a little bit of of research on the book at one point, too. I tried to find out when it was written and a little bit about the author and stuff. And I, I tried really hard not to see other people's reviews. I saw the first line of one, my eyes glanced over and I couldn't help but read it. And the person who reviewed it compared the medical lobby to the DMV. <laughs> yeah. That's what I was trying to avoid too, looking at some reviews. See, that's why I just don't research. At a boy. That's why we love you, and girl. Although I will have to say, though, that doctor, I kind of garnered a little respect for him when he turned and gave the money to Feldman instead of the attendant, like the finder fee. 
Yeah, I thought that was interesting. He went from being this horrible person who was there just for himself, just to get his wages, and he was bothered to be there in the first place. And then he goes and hands the money to Feldman. That was just a little off the wall, I thought. It was very touching. I mean, he demonized his character, and then all of a sudden, hey, he's not so bad after all. Yeah, he called him Pariah. Yeah. And the funny thing is, about that scene, is he knew darn well that it was Feldman who had diagnosed it and he deserved it. But had he just given it to the other guy, you know, had he had that much disdain for the pariah because he's a, and because you're supposed to, he could have given it to the other guy and what would have done about it. You know, he couldn't have raised the issue with anyone anywhere. Yeah, which is part of the reason why I was surprised that he didn't give him to the attendant in the first place. Yeah, that's a really good point. So, okay, so how about the second trial? I think that the second trial came out, and it took how, you know, you thought that the same kind of thing made it, might happen again inside the second trial. And then he just got blown away in there. Yeah, and I he, thought that, that really brought out the point that the odds aren't trying to make him invincible. Well, until he got rescued from space. But yeah, he, he did, he got, he got just, I mean, crucified in that courtroom. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you listened to that, and you thought it was all over at that point. Well, I kind of knew it wasn't all over, because there was many more chapters. You can't do that, Anne. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Those could have been five or six, you know, completely blank sets of minutes where he just sits there and says, yeah, the book's over. Sorry, guys. Well, it killed him after the trial. You it know, could it, have been the lamentation of the women. <laughs> it could have been. I mean, it could also have been, and it crossed my mind, this could have been that they actually went ahead and killed them, and somebody else, like my ex-wife, picked up where he left off and totally changed character or something, but it didn't go like that. I thought that trial, the second trial, was just a farce. It wasn't even worth calling it a trial. Well, it wasn't a trial. It was a, let's yeah. just put him to death. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think the point of it was to make it look like a trial. I think the point of it was to, to show that it wasn't. I mean, to start off your first piece of evidence was, you know, a tape that had been doctored, and the original of the tape wasn't submitted or allowed. Oh, it, now, there was another piece of evidence, and I was going to say, I thought the first piece of evidence was the bracky weed. Yes. He was addicted. Yeah, I thought he, that didn't come on to second or third piece, but it, I think that's, you know, doesn't yeah, really matter that much. Third piece, but you made me think of it. And the judge was just like, yep, I've tasted it. He's got to be addicted to even to even stand it. It was the same judge from before, wasn't it? No. 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 Oh, okay, okay. The first judge was, they said he could have been Jake's brother, and, and, I, and they never cleared it up, but I, I suspect he probably was. And the second judge was a medical lobby judge. Oh, gotcha. And the first one was a space lobby, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, unless Mars had some lobby of its own. Which, by the way, okay, the two lobbies, right? Medical and space. They were in space for a six-month trip in each direction. There's no fuel lobby? Come on, he missed that one. Because if you look at the lobbies that we have today that really control stuff, you're talking about medical in the form of the drug industry and uh, and oil, big oil. I mean, those are the two really big lobbies today. So, I mean, maybe it's 2020 hindsight, but I don't know. I, I Oh, and it was before the gas crunch, too, wasn't it? Yeah, I think, I think was it was great. a big lobby back then, too, wasn't it? I mean, not as big as it is today, but still... I read Moby Dick, and it was a big lobby when they were taking oil out of whales. So <laughs> you could be right. Man, you just want it all packed into the short story now, Pokey, don't you? You're not happy. 
No, I'm happy. I just, I just, we're we're on this podcast to talk about what, what we about noticed. the food lobby? So they had to eat. Yeah, that's the true. Farming well, they, lobby. well, they had they had synthesized food. That's so, true. There'd be two food lobbies, and they did mention them. Big Farm, Big Farm was the first big lobby. That's true. They did. I'm sure there was a few lobby in there, but it probably didn't seem relevant to him to put into the story. It was like six guys mixing up their own plutonium at home. That's <laughs> it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's I thought they said it used oil still. Well, no, because that's what the tube men did, was they replaced the, the tiles that were the fuel that got burnt up, I think. Were they the fuel, or was that... Because I was wondering about that, the, the tiles that they were talking about. Was it just that that was to contain, protect the ship from the heat of the fuel? I didn't see it that way. What did you think, Integral? You know, I didn't really catch what the tubes were there for. But I don't know that much about space freighters, so I just kind of passed it on to a dangerous job that needed to be done. Yeah, see, so okay, now, Dan, I, I thought what they were, I thought they were the fuel, and I thought they wore out, and it was some kind of um, you know, impulse that made them go. <laughs> I, I thought it was just like like impulse, whatever tiny pickles came out of those tiles between all the tubes, you know, added up to some you know, great amount. But... I didn't even think because because they were inside the tubes working on them while the thing was going. It never occurred to me that might they might just shut off a, a, a rocket engine. Well, let me see here. But that other one blew up. That's why I think they were live. That's why you know what I mean. You said there was yeah. micro radiation in the tubes too. Let's see. You building one now, Dan? Yeah, I'm working on it right now. Excellent. All right, Integral. Any other thoughts now that you've heard bar theories? Shadow magic. Well, what I'm looking at here right now, Greenhorn, ain't you? Okay, I'll take you with me. We go into the tubes and pull the lining. I pry up the stuff and you back here and stack it. So I didn't think that that was the, actually the tubing, the uh, the fuel. It was what lined the tubes and it was mildly radioactive. And whatever it is that the tubes did, they pulled, they took the uh, the tiles back and they melted them down again and made new tu- made made new tiles out of them. So I didn't think that that was actually the fuel. Because I'm reading the book right I'm reading through the book right now, trying to get a better feel on that. Yeah. You can well, get it for free. That makes me think now that they're more like maybe the tiles on the space shuttle, because they replace those things every trip in real life. You know, the underbelly of the space shuttle is like all these tiles. Yeah, yeah all the ceramic tiles. Yeah, that, that's what kind of I thought it was, too. It, it was something to shield the ship from the radioactivity and the heat and whatever. Because they did make a point of saying that, you know, the people inside the center of the ship with the gravity and everything, they had, like, it was luxurious compared to what the two men, and they were just living in hell. You know, you, you think about it, they have all these lobbies, you know, the doctors, the the farming lobby, and the space lobby, but yet here are these this group of people that are integral to interstellar travel that they just treat like, dirt like insects you know who cares whether they own out of the tube there's no safety for these guys they live in such horrid conditions i mean it's it's and yet here they are toiling away to make a, a living here and maybe get a farm or a ranch somewhere after six or seven months of uh, or six or seven tours yeah but i think that the the space lobby was more like the spacing guild from dune and less like a uh, tubeman's lobby right but i would th- think that's such an important job there would have been a lobby that up around that yeah they would have built up for protection of their rights and lives 
Right. That was no really way. brutal. No way. The medical lobby hung one of their own, one of their very top guys, out to dry and seemed to enjoy it. There's no way anyone stands these peons or even listening to them when they band together. I just, you know what I mean? It's yeah. like the corporations we have now, you know? All these big corporations don't care about any person. See, notice how neither of us are responding because we don't want to get fired. I, well, you both think I'm full of BS. I'd love to hear. What do you mean fired? This is I, this is Hacker Public Radio's podcast. You guys could fire me. Well, I don't mean from the podcast. I think I mean from, you know, our, our job. <laughs> our jobs as a corporate America. You know, oh, where no. they don't care about the workers, according to you. They treat the people on Mars like crap, too, so I guess it comes as no surprise. And, you know, well, it's com- common to see that still go on. I was just surprised there wasn't, like, some kind of lobby for them. I think that was kind of the point of the whole book, was that these two lobbies had gained so much power, there wasn't the opportunity for a third lobby to step in. You know, think modern-day Democrats and Republicans, and even a Tea Party. Even, you know, a concerted effort by real people has zero effect without some outside influence. Well, it was an evil bunch of people. They were evil. They were evil. And, and you know, you mentioned, or I, I forget which one you just mentioned a moment ago, how they treated the people on Mars. That was incredible. You know, I mean, the whole time, like, they weren't even people to them. All, all these, like, real human beings on Mars. If we can't control it, we're going to blow it up. We're going to take our ball and go home. You know, I mean, that was crazy. And totally, totally believable. It, it was. Until... Until they realized that the cure for the disease was on Mars, then they had a bargaining chip. Yep, it was on Mars, and he made a point to mention that it would take them 10 years to create it on their own. So yeah, yeah was, I think that was the only thing that ended up in them at all. It, yeah, it was, definitely was. You guys think we're nearing the end here? I think so. Okay. Well, I think we should cover the quality of the audio and all, at least a little bit. Of this one? Yeah. Or of, oh, of the guy reading. Yeah. Yeah, it, the reading. That guy is fantastic. Yeah, I thought he did a really good job. I've heard him read one other audiobook, uh, one that he had written himself, and he his his inflection, like, at no point did I ever mix up two characters. Yeah, which was really awesome. Because occasionally you'll hear, uh, if it's like the author reading it, they'll slip into a different character or... Even if it's somebody that practices it all the time, sometimes you'll just catch that slight tinge. And I didn't hear that at all with this guy. He really gave life to each of the individual characters. Jake especially, I thought. Yeah, Jake was the guy that I was cheering for for the whole book, even with Feldman. Really? He, he, was, your, he was your guy, huh? Yeah, I liked Jake. How did you feel at the end when he became the president, or likely the president? I think he'll make a better revolutionary than president. <laughs> you think that's going to fall apart under his rule? Yeah. Why is that? Well, when you get somebody that's such an idealist like that, I mean, he was a realist as well, but he knew it happened. It doesn't necessarily mean he'll know how to do it. I kind of thought that the point was made when they offered Feldman. He offered Feldman that position, and he turned it down. And they were shocked that he turned it down. Were you? Uh, no, that's not who no. Feldman is. I know. I wasn't surprised at all. That part was like, what? Why'd you even offer yeah, really. I mean, maybe to be nice, you'd be like, hey, um, you know, since you saved us, do you want this? 
See, in that case, he should have taken it, and then, you know, they would have been like, oh, we expected you to turn it down, and... I, I mean, I, if they're going to screw with you... <laughs> what were you going to say, Dan? I was going to say that I was. I thought the quality of this was really, really freaking awesome, too. It was good stuff. He did a great job. Yeah, he did. he did a good job reading, and I swear he read it, like, each chapter all in one take, because I didn't hear any transitions... I didn't hear any splicing together where he might have, you know, done the whole chapter in one voice and done done it again in another voice. That's what I would do if I had to do that. I didn't hear any of that from him. Yeah, usually you'll hear some sort of error or correction or something. It's really surprising to not hear that. Oh yeah, not even not even like where he would splice in a word or a chapter. Oh, not on a chapter like a paragraph. But Nathan Lowell explained that one on uh, on tilts, didn't he, Dan? Yes, he talked about that. How to explain it? I don't remember. He said that if he made a mistake on a word, instead of re-recording the word, he would re-record the whole paragraph so that the background noises and the acoustics of the recording area are not as obvious. Okay, that makes some sense. Yeah, that was like uh, lifting the kimono moment. That was great. And I think the guy that read this book if he didn't do some of that, then he's just an amazing, amazing reader because he's his work is incredible. Yeah, he's he's really good. I would like to read more by him. And uh, yeah, and and he's done a lot more. He actually uh, is part of of what seems to be a performing troupe. They have a lot of other a lot of other stuff that they do. They have a whole series uh, called the called the Arbiter Chronicles and. One of the audiobooks of theirs, I listened to. It seems like there's two audiobooks and then like a whole series of individual chapters and adventures. And the one that I listened to was fantastic. That was called uh, Taking Liberty. That was, it was great. Did you say faking, making, or bacon liberty? I think he said pagan. Oh, pagan. Well, I missed the ball on that altogether. I think I said taken. Oh, taken. Well, yeah, then I'm in they, the ball. As in they took someone's liberty. Ah, nothing to do with bacon. Delicious bacon. I think we can all raise a glass to bacon. Agreed. Bill Bacon. And I don't mean Kevin. Not yeah. Francis either? Nor Jono. <laughs> Jono. We're way off topic again. Yeah, but you know what? I can bring it back. Because when they closed the book, and I thought this was fantastic, and especially for being as long ago as it was, he mentioned that that once they had resolved the issue and research was going to happen again, that the shared knowledge that came out of that was going to be what liberated people, you know, Earth and Mars. And they mentioned that liberation, you know, freedom wasn't going to last. They, he knew that, which was which was real interesting, I thought. But that the sharing of information would. And this was 73, and now we have the Internet. And it's really, in a lot of cases, the only free we have. True. Well, for now. Yeah, definitely. And if we let it go, then, then uh, we lose it. I mean, just like they did. I'll be interested to read more from this guy. Well, it's two guys. Are you talking about Lester Del Rey, or are you talking about yeah, the guy Lester who... Yeah, Lester Del Rey. I'd like to know what you think of him if you do read it. Let me see if uh, he has any more books on Project Gutenberg. So is that it for this book? Did you guys have anything else to say about this one? I think that's about it. 
Dan? I, I think it's, I really enjoyed it, and I hope that anybody listening to this has already gone out and read it. Yeah, I, I, yeah, they should have at this point. And if, if we just spoiled the book for someone who didn't read it, um, I hope we did a good job convincing them that it's actually spoiled and not just meh. I'd also like to say that the picture of Lester Del Rey on his Wikipedia page, he's got an awesome beard. That picture is fantastic. So, did you have in mind our next audiobook? Oh, I know you do. You've been... Who, me? No, yeah. no, I picked this one. This is between the two of you guys. Which one do you think he's talking about, Dan? Oh, I thought he was going to go with Shadow Magic. <laughs> well, I'm I'm not picking the book, but... Uh... Dan, what was what was your suggestion? I I don't mind going with Shadow Magic because I started that with my family on the way up from my mother-in-law's place, and I think we're going to restart it when I go up to my parents this weekend, and hopefully finish it. So I don't mind doing that. Okay, that sounds alright to me. Yeah, I think we're all in. Then I I've started it with my kids, and they love it. Well, I can definitely see why it's one of the best books I've heard in a while. Yeah, it's definitely one of the best. It's it's one of the best presented audiobooks. It's just it's presented so well. And like you said before, the way he says the name of the book, I mean, that just makes you want to listen to it more and more and more. I swear, when he says shadow magic and the way he says it, I can feel my heart rate increase. Yeah, same here. It just makes you excited. I would suggest to anyone listen to this, even considering listening to another audio that they check out the first chapter of Shadow Magic, and if they're not sold by the end of the first chapter, give it another chapter. And do that like 30 times. Yeah, definitely, because you'll, you'll get into it. <laughs> 30 times. <laughs> now, uh, one thing I want to mention, though, if people are interested in, in checking out Shadow Magic with their families, with their kids, there are a couple of hells and dams in there, and I think maybe an ass or two where he goes ass over tea kettle. So if you're going to listen to that with your kids, if that's not okay, then watch out for that. I don't want anybody thinking we're, we're recommending that and then get mad at us. Would you listen to Batch of Infamy with your kids? I think my kids are a little young for it. I think it's the, the language is definitely appropriate for kids that age. Uh-huh. Content-wise. They lose not interest. It? Yeah. And that's weird because I'm completely fascinated by it. Like you said, I couldn't stop listening to it. Yeah, it was definitely one that I didn't put down. I listened all the way through and then listened to it again. So do you guys, are you are you both into politics? Yeah. Not as much as I should be. So what was what kept you into the book then, Dan? The politics. Really? It was just... Well, I mean, it wasn't just the politics. I, I f- he, he, it was the character, that old, you know, here's the pariah, the downtrodden guy. You know, the underdog trying to do what's right. Rah, rah, rah type of thing. Fighting against the power. Sticking it to the man. Can't imagine a Linux guy liking that. No, oh, that's, that's really far afield, Dan. I know. It, it shocked me, too. That's what blew me away that I enjoyed that so much. Sounds like an Apple fanboy describing the book. Yeah, well, that's, that's the way I felt. Well, you know what? It was the man gets knocked down and then rises back up to be the man again. That's the way it is. That's the Apple story. So it's the Steve Jobs story. He gets. That's he gets, it. Oh boy. Yeah, yeah I think we're done here. <laughs> 
Thanks, everyone, for listening to our inaugural audio book club show. We hope you'll join us again for the next one, which will be Shadow Magic by John Lenahan. On behalf of myself, thank you very much, you guys. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Now, that's just the first book of Shadow Magic, right? Not the second book, too. We'll go yeah, just, just Shadow Magic, not the Prince of Hazel and Oak yet. Yeah, well, you we'll... already know. I don't know what the name of the book is. Second book. It yeah, just he... finished, too. Yep. Last week, book, he just... Too. Only compared to this one. Compared to other books, they're not too terribly long. I mean, there's a lot of chapters, but they're short. Yeah, especially inside the second book. The chapters are progressively shorter than inside the first book, and they they don't cover as much. You want to give the people a teaser, Integral? The the teaser? Yeah, the teaser for Shadow Magic. What are they in for? They're in for a hilarious fantasy adventure written by a real magician, so he knows what he's talking about when it comes to escaping from chains, making things disappear, and people vanishing in puffs of smoke. It will make you laugh on nearly every page, um, track, but it will also sweep you with a wonderful story of courage, friendship, and destiny. <laughs> that was astonishing. I know, I just like came up that. with that off the cuff. It's I'm awesome like that. Thanks everyone for listening. It's been a real pleasure working with you, Integral, and with you, Dan, on this, this podcast that we've done. Thank you. Yeah, yeah thanks for having us, Pokey. Yeah, Integral, you have a podcast, too. It's very good. Where can we find that? You can find it at techmisfits.com. And Dan, you are a podcast legend, especially no. in, in the Linux community. And if people don't know where to find your podcast, we will flog them, and then they can go where? Linux in the howyhouse.org. Excellent. TLLTS.org. Uh, thanks to everyone for listening. Until next time, have a great time enjoying Shadow Magic. Sidewalk Audio and PatioBooks.com presents Shadow Magic, a podcast novel by John Linehan. Hello, my name's Connor. A while back, my dad and I got attacked in our living rooms by some lunatics on horseback, and they kidnapped us and took us to Tirnanog, the mystical land of the ancient Celts, where I found out that Pop was the usurped heir to the throne, my mother was an outlaw sorceress, and everyone in the land wanted me dead because of some ancient prophecy. I mean, don't you just hate when that happens? I'm really John Lenihan, the author and reader of Shadow Magic, a new pod novel on patiobooks.com. Shadow Magic is a rip-roaring, old-school fantasy adventure very, very loosely based on Irish mythology. So have a listen to Shadow Magic and join Connor as he grapples with typical teenage problems like how to deal with a father's high expectations, how to crash a party full of immortals, and how to get a date with a beautiful girl who literally wants you dead. Shadow Magic is a podcast novel for young adults from 12 to 112. Find it on patiobooks.com or my website, shadowmagic.co.uk, where the bad guys wear black and the good guys wear night. And yes, I am the same John Lenihan who is the voice of the talking toaster on Red Dwarf. Thank you for listening to Hack Republic Radio. HPR is sponsored by caro.net. 
So head on over to caro.net for all your hosting needs.